Let's open our Bibles this morning to 2 Kings chapter 5. couple of individuals throughout scripture whom God has visited in different ways. We have uh, looked at Jonah, we've looked at Hannah in the past couple of weeks, and, and of course when the Lord visited Jonah, he ran the other way, uh, didn't want to do what the Lord wanted him to do, finally admitted the Lord was right, went and did what the Lord wanted him to do, never enjoyed it, and hated the outcome. And he's our greatest missionary, okay, I don't know. Hannah didn't understand why the Lord was not visiting her, uh, but yet her heart was always right before the Lord. It wasn't bitter. It wasn't, um, uh, it wasn't angry towards the Lord in any fashion, even though Elkanah's uh, other wife, uh, Peninnah, just uh, flaunted her uh, fertility and, and children in front of her. And her husband, who tried to comfort her, was still a... Uh, a guy and wasn't very comforting in, in that situation, yet when the Lord did answer her and bless her with a son, and she carried through with it and gave her son back to the Lord and entrusted Samuel to the likes of Eli, which took maybe greater faith than anything else. Well, when the Lord visits us or calls us, it's not easy for everybody, i.e. Jonah, who really didn't like what the Lord wanted him to do or admit what the Lord wanted him to do was what was best, because we like to think that, what, I know best, right? Okay, yeah, we like that. And there are many reasons we think we know better than the Lord, and Jonah had a variety of them. He was prejudiced, he was bitter at how he had been treated and how his people had been treated by the people he was to go and take the message of forgiveness to, and he took pride in the sense that he was one of the covenant people. Okay? He says, I thought, you know, I'm Jewish. The promise belongs to us. It doesn't belong to anybody else. It belongs only to us. And here the Lord says, go and take it to somebody else. And that really graded against him. Well, we're going to look at somebody this morning whom the Lord comes and visits. And he didn't like it at all because he's very, very prideful. So if you're able, would you stand with me? And I'll read from 2 Kings chapter 5. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, come upon us this morning and open our eyes to your word, that we might understand it, that in the life of this individual, you may help us see our own shortcomings, our own failings, but also your mercies and care, that you go out of your way, so to speak, to demonstrate these things to us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So from 2 Kings chapter 5. Now Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram, Aram would be Syria, okay, was a great man with his master and highly respected because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. You I keep interrupting the reading of the word, but you understand the Lord has given victory to Aram, to Syria, okay? This is not the covenant people. This is a different people, but the Lord, for his purposes, has done this. Okay. The man was also a valiant warrior, but he was a leper. Now, the Arameans had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. 
And she said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus spoke the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Aram said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand shekels of gold and ten changes of clothes. Now we understand that the silver and gold, but what about the clothes? Well, the clothes, were, was a, they were a common gift at that time. So it would be like bringing... Um, I want Randy's favor, so I'm going to bring him some gold and some silver and ten $2,000 suits. I'm not asking, I'm just, but if, we, never mind. Okay. Ah. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, And now as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may cure him of leprosy. And it came about when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sending word to me to cure a man of leprosy? But consider now and see how is he seeking a quarrel against me? And it happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes that he sent word to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was furious and went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me. And stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Pharapar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Then his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. This is God's inspired word for us this morning. So please be seated. So the man we're looking at this morning is Naaman, and his first impression to the people around him was from his name. His name comes from the Hebrew verb neum, uh, which means to be delightful, to be pleasant, to be beautiful. So we get the impression that prior to his affliction, which we know is, is leprosy, prior to this affliction, he must have been something, he must have been pretty hunky, okay? Pretty good to look at. Uh, I mean, he was a general, he was a war hero, the Lord had blessed him, and he was handsome, and he was beautiful. The name suggests also that he was gracious, and he was delightful. But inwardly, Naaman is all about pride and about self-assurance. Now, this is good in a general, because he goes out and takes action. Okay, and he, but he always manifested that pride in action that he thought was right. But yet we know from the word that the Lord was working through him. As we see, Naaman is the general of the Aramean army, the Syrian army, second in command only to the king. He's given a great amount of authority, a 
great amount of power. He is a great man. He is highly respected, a national hero, so to speak, because of his victories. But he's not accustomed to waiting. He's not accustomed to not having things done and making action right away. And he has had this leprosy for some time. Okay, It's undetermined here, but obviously it has been a problem uh, in his life. But the real problem in his life is not leprosy. The real problem in his life is his pride. Okay? And the other surprise here that we don't, we don't normally think, that the real person of influence, the person this passage really highlights just in passing, is this Israelite maid. Because she is the person of influence here. She is the one who influences Naaman to go and to act. And he must have been desperate. I mean, he must have been desperate and willing, if he was willing to take the, the advice of his wife's Israelite maid. She was basically the lowest of the lows. She was captured property from a raid into Israel. Uh, she was a servant. She was a foreigner. And most of all, she was a what? A woman. Oh, that's bad. Okay, you imagine a general taken advice from a maid. No, that just didn't happen. But Naaman's willingness to act on this young woman's point of, uh, point of view and, and advice must have really shown how desperate he was. I mean, he just had had it up to here. And, and as we look at leprosy, we'll see why he had had it up to there. Now, it says he had leprosy, but uh, the Hebrew just says it in one word, leprous, leprous, which highlights his problem. Okay, now, there are two major types of leprosy in, uh, that we find in the Old Testament, and I think he had the worst kind uh, from what I can, what I can discern, uh, it, the more severe type, which it encompasses the entire body and its entire function. And I'm just going to read a quote here. As this disease begins to spread, the face and the body change shape because of spongy tumors that begin to appear. The disease involves the internal organs as well. It is deep-seated in the bones, joints, and marrow of the body, resulting in the deterioration of the tissues between the bones. The pain of leprosy, at least in certain forms, was not acute, but it also killed the nerves in the affected area. But it kept the victims restless, miserable, and frustrated, and there was a, a real stigma attached to the disease. The results are deformity, loss of feeling in the appendages, fingers and toes eventually falling off or being lost by accident. You know, if you close your hand in the car door, you know it. Okay? A leper does not because it kills the nerves. Not that they hit cars then, but they might get caught between a wheel and something else and walk away and the finger is left there and they don't know that they've left a finger there because the nerves are completely numb. They saw portions of their body become numb, muscles atrophy, tendons contracting so that their hands often look like claws. This form is incurable and lasts until the victim finally dies, often by the invasion of other diseases. They may live for 20 or 30 years in this miserable condition. So we don't have an idea of how long Naaman was in this condition, but obviously he was very distraught and ready to try anything. Now, considering his position, he probably had already tried everything that was available to someone who had incredible wealth and incredible power and access to every modern medical 
achievements of this time period. Now, in uh, Leviticus 13, 14, it talks about how the people of God were to respond to lepers and, and how they were to deal with leprosy. And we see throughout Scripture, leprosy is really a picture of sin, how it, in, how it invades, how it takes over, how it destroys the body, and how it separates out. And the only cure for leprosy was what? It was the Lord. There was no other cure, especially for this very radical and, and deadly kind, eventually, that Naaman had. There was only one way he could be cured, and that was the intervention of the Lord, just like sin. There's only one way to get rid of it, and that is the Lord. So apparently, the Assyrians did not see leprosy in the same way that the people of God and the Israelites did. Because if you were leprous, you had to be removed from society. But here we see Naaman still acting as general and still going in to see the king. So there was not the same stigma attached to it in the Aramean community as there was in the Israelite community. Now, as nasty as this disease was, it appears that Naaman's disease was actually good for him. Okay? Now, how many of us are going to go right out and get leprosy now and see if it's good for us? Well, uh, it's just not the way we typically think. Now, Naaman doesn't see it either yet. I mean, in the early portions of this, he, he doesn't grasp it yet. But that's the way the Lord often works. Let's go over to Psalm 119. going to read verses out of the 60s and the 70s, so you want to go there. We see in other places of Scripture that the Lord will afflict people for their own good. You remember Nebuchadnezzar, and there he stands, and he looks out over all his creation and says, aren't I the greatest thing in the world, basically? And then the Lord did what to him? Struck him for seven years. He went out in the field and ate grass like a cow, until it, the Scripture says he came to his senses, basically, and admitted who he was before the Lord, and the Lord healed him and restored him. We also see Paul, well, not quite the same way, but yet the Lord is doing it for a particular purpose. Paul prays three times for the removal of this thorn in his flesh. Whether this thorn in his flesh was uh, some uh, uh, disease, was it a personal issue, was it the work of that the Lord was allowing Satan to work on him in some fashion, but the Lord does not remove this thorn in his flesh, particularly to keep him from being prideful. Okay? So here we have Naaman, and Naaman's issue is pride. That's his big issue, and the Lord is going to deal with him through the leprosy. Now in uh, Psalm 119, look at verse 67. It says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Verse 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn thy statutes. 73, thy hands made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn thy commandments. Okay, so we see the author of Psalm 119 is saying, it was good that I had these things because that's what it took for me to learn that the Lord was in control and what the Lord wanted me to learn. It's like humility. Do you want the Lord to teach you humility, or do you want to work on it yourself? Uh, I'd much rather focus on it myself, because if the Lord has to teach me humility, that means I'm way too prideful, and if he's going to wallop me, hmm, it's going to be difficult. 
Now, I might come out the other side like the guy writes in Psalm 119. You know, basically, I understand now why I had this affliction, and now I understand your word much deeper. I would rather work on it and understand it myself rather than have the Lord wallow me. Now, back to Second Kings chapter 5. And let's look through and see what the Lord is doing in Naaman's life. It says, now the Arameans had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. Um, one of the many periods of time where the nations around Israel were being used by the Lord to discipline his people, and so the Arameans, the Syrians, were coming in and raiding the, the land, and they were taking people away uh, as prisoners. Now observe the contrast between Naaman and the little girl that his troops had captured and ended up in his house. He was a Gentile. She was a Jew. He was a great man. She was a little maid. He was Naaman, and she was... We don't know. She's not named. She doesn't even get a name in this, in this narrative. He was captain of the Lord of hosts of Syria. She was an enemy's captive. He was a leper... Well, strange to say, she was the contributing factor that he got rid of that leprosy. And it has been God's way, many times, to make use of the foolish in the world's eyes, make use of the small, to make use of the ones that the world puts aside to do his work and to do great things. Now, in that vein, we're going to take a little excursus over into the into the the topic of the providence of God here, because this is what we see happen. Now, it was, it was God who directed this little maid to be in Naaman's household. Why? Well, so that she could be the link between his disease and his healing. If it wasn't for her in, in the story, there, there's no evidence that he would have ever been healed. And almost probably would never have been saved. I mean, if, if we call it this in the Old Testament, this is pretty much Naaman's come-to-Jesus time, okay? If we could apply that in the Old Testament, because he is far away from the Lord, but yet the Lord is doing what to him? Remember the Hound of Heaven, that poem? He's pursuing Naaman. Naaman is not looking for the Lord. Naaman doesn't think he needs the Lord, but he is pursuing Naaman. particular reason that we face trials is not always made plain to us. Oftentimes it's even concealed to us that we don't understand it for some time, if ever. And if we can plainly see the reason why we had pain, plainly see the reason why we had suffering, plainly see the reason why life wasn't a bed of roses, then it really wouldn't exercise our faith. Remember Hannah? Hannah is not, it's not explained to her why she doesn't have a child. It's just she is left there to demonstrate her faith and her trust in the Lord. Her heart was devoted to the midst to the Lord, even in the midst of her pain. Now think about this young girl's family. Here you have, they are the covenant people of the Lord. They live in Israel, that's the northern kingdom. And things are going well, but along come the Arameans, and they raid, and they take away the little girl from this family. Now, we're going to read into this because we don't, 
we don't have any uh, example of her family, but let's put yourself as her mother or father. What do you think? Here, our daughter has been taken from us. Lord, we've been faithful all these days, and yet here she is ripped from our household, and she's taken away, and we'll probably never see her again. Or maybe you're the siblings, and you're crying yourself to sleep at night thinking, am I next? Are they going to come get me next? What has ever happened to her? And they're crying out to the Lord, and they don't see his hand of providence in this. They don't understand that she has been taken from the midst of their household and placed in Naaman's household so that the Lord may do a wonderful work in Naaman's life. But yet that is often the providence of God. We don't always like it, but we don't always understand everything that he's doing as well. So imagine Naaman coming home, moaning and complaining about this leprosy, about his fingers falling off and his, you know, not doing all this. And he's just probably driving everybody crazy. Let's look at verse 3. And she said to her mistress, now pay attention, what is missing in her words? I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, then he would cure him of this leprosy. Think about this for a minute. Here you are, you've been taken from your family into another country, now you're a servant, and your master comes home with leprosy? I bet some of us are thinking, he deserves it. Because <laughs> all the bad things that he did, now the Lord's going to punish him, and his nose is going to fall off, and his fingers and his hands, and he's going to die. Terrible death. She doesn't see that. Nor does she even say, I know how my master can be healed, and if you free me, I will tell you. She doesn't say that either. She has what can only I can only consider to be a real deep love and concern for Naaman. Now, where does this come from? I'm going to blame her parents. Her parents probably taught her the things of compassion, taught her the things of the Lord, and that perhaps he orders our lives so that we may understand his work and carry out his will. That, that, that's what I'm going to assume is going on in her mind here because there's no bitterness. And I, I bet this demonstrates her regular countenance. The way she normally operated was out of compassion. And she cares about the man who has taken her from her family and held her captive. So she indicates there's somebody in Samaria whom she is certain who can cure this disease. Now, Naaman can't just uh, call him up on the phone, can't just make a quick trip over. This is a serious excursion he has to make into Samaria, into Israel up there. So first he goes to his king, and he says, I hear that there's this guy who can heal me. How about letting me go? And the king says to his general, sure, I'll write a letter, uh, take some gold and silver with you, see if you can convince him to heal you. Now, it wasn't we get the, the impression here that Naaman is coming with his entourage, okay, and he is coming with some serious cash to give to the prophet in Samaria. Now, uh, this morning I looked up the uh, current rate of silver per ounce and for gold per ounce, so just that we have an idea of how much money he had with him to give to the prophet to heal him. It works out to about 750 pounds of silver, uh, the price of silver was $21.50 an ounce. That's $258,000 worth of silver in today's dollars that he had with him. 
and it works out to about 150 pounds of gold. Gold was trading at 13.19 an ounce, so that works out to 3.165 million dollars in gold. So Naaman takes with him somewhere around 3.4 million dollars to give to Elisha, plus all those suits. Now he arrives before the king, and he says, "I'm here," and he gives him the letter. And the king, now understand, the king of Israel, who has all this power, who has all this authority, who has, you know, basically everything that he could want, and and it's not listed here who he was. We find it in other places. But only if he was obedient to the Lord, the Lord would bless him in a fa fabulous way. His first inclination about this leprous guy who shows up looking for healing is what? This is a prelude to war. There must be some, some subtle trick here that the king of Aram wants to pull on me so I don't understand it. So he says, well, this is, who am I to heal you? And he tears, your, tears his clothes and thinks it's this great conspiracy. End of verse 7. But consider now, see how he is seeking a quarrel against me. Now, there's nothing else that goes on about the king, but Elisha hears about it. Now, it, it's not made clear to us how Elisha hears about what is going on. Maybe the Lord informs him, prompts him, maybe just word of mouth comes and says, there's this guy, uh, this general Naaman, and he's looking for you, and the king isn't telling you. But Elisha sends a message to the king. Verse 8. And it happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Send him over here, and I'll deal with him, because he's looking for me. So Naaman, and, and verse 9, is classic. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots, and what else? And his silver, and his gold, and his clothes, and his entourage, and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. Okay. So here he comes. The general, the second in command of Syria, comes to see Elisha. Now, I, I tried to make some comparison, as poor as it is. Here you come to me, and, and you've been in the church all your life. I mean, when they laid the foundation of this building, you were there. That, that's only means Bill Galloway, because he's the only one old enough. Uh, sorry, Bill. Okay, but so you've been here all your life, and you're just as old as dirt, and you come to me, and, and you and your spouse come, and, and you come, and you get to Lisa's office, and you say, we've got this terrible problem. We, we have to talk to Randy. And Lisa buzzes me, and, and she says, Randy, uh, you know, uh, the patriarch and matriarch of Central are here, and they need to talk to you. And I say, oh, uh, yeah, send them down to Ditto Landing and have them jump in the lake. And I hang up the phone. Well, how are you going to feel? <laughs> he, he's treating me this way? Well, this is what Naaman says, basically. He says, you're treating me this way? I come all the way from my country with all this cash, with all these gifts, and with all my entourage, and who comes out to meet him? Elisha doesn't even come out to meet him. Elisha sends his servant out. Ugh. The general of Syria is not used to dealing with servants in this way. not used to getting messages. From servants. He is used to dealing with the real people, with the man in charge. But what Elisha did was really, you know, as we look at it, it was really an act of love. 
was really an act of the Lord's providence in Naaman's hand because what's Naaman's problem? It's not leprosy, it's pride. What better way to smash his pride than to send your servant out? Okay? And now that's one. Secondly, to send your servant out and tell him to go where? The Jordan River. Now, I just happen to have some Jordan River here with me today. Okay? This was given to me, Jordan River water. Now, it has been sitting for 10 years undisturbed in my cabinet. So all the sediment is down at the bottom. So I'm really going to go out on a limb here and turn it over. Now, you really can't see this, but you can come up later and look at all the gunk that is in that water. I've been to the Jordan, and I have looked into it, and I have walked away saying, I'm not going in that river. Why? Because it's full of gunk. And, and we were there, this was uh, 2000, 2001, and you know, a bunch of ministers, and we all go down to, to the Jordan. We think this is going to be great, and we'll be able to, to, to get in the Jordan and say that, you know, well, we weren't baptized because we were all Presbyterians, and you don't want to be rebaptized as a Presbyterian because we got to take out and burn you at the stake if you're rebaptized. It's all bad, okay? And I looked in the river, and there in the murky water were these dark, Creatures, uh, shapes, they're about this long. I, I, I would just think that they were Jordan catfish. That's what I would think. And, and we all stood and looked like this. And we said, we're not going in the water. <laughs> none of us, so uh, 15 of us, none of us went in the Jordan River because we were afraid to go in the Jordan River. Yeah. Well, the prophet's servant tells the general, go dip yourself in the Jordan seven times. Now, Naaman is about ready to tear his hair out. He says, well, at first, the king can't help me. He sends me off to here. I come with all these gifts. I'm ready to, to buy my way to health. And the prophet doesn't even come out to talk to me. He sends his servant out, and his servant says, go and dip yourself in the Jordan. That's, and I'm paraphrasing here, that's thinking Jordan River. Why can't I go to my rivers? Because my rivers are nice and clean. Well, look what his servants say to him. Verse 13. The servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father. Now this is not, we, we don't think that his servant was his actual son, but we think that his servants cared so much about him that they would call him their father. My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? I mean, remember, he was expecting to show up, have the prophet come out, probably bow down, have the prophet wave his hand over the areas that were touched by leprosy and walk away healed. Yes, it was going to cost him something, but that was okay. He had the resources. The prophet sends him down the river, and he's upset. And his servants say, is it any less of a healing? If he tells you to do something common, something that you think is beneath you, you think it's only a good healing? If he makes a big fuss and there's, there's healing power that comes down from heaven and rain and you are healed right there in front of us? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? Now what do you think Naaman believed at this moment? you think he had a come-to-Jesus meeting right there and says, yes, I think this is true. 
and I'm going to go right down and wash in the river. I think he gritted his teeth and said, all right, I'm going to go to the Jordan. And when I come up from that seventh time, and I'm no better than I am right now, I'm going to come back and I'm going to kill everybody in this household. Just because they have so embarrassed me. But he went. Now, the act of faith was not necessarily believing. The act of faith was actually going and doing this obscure and silly-sounding thing. I mean, who experiences grace? It's not the proud, it's the humble. And Naaman comes along and says, Yeah, okay, I'm going to go down there. Once comes out, no action. Twice goes in, no action. Three, four, five. What do you think is on Naaman's mind? By the time he's coming out of the water the seventh time. You think by then he'd been broken? You think by then he'd come to figure out that, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to believe. I'm going to go all in. I mean, what did you think was going to happen to you when you put up your hand or when you prayed the prayer to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior or you went forward? Maybe you had a road to Damascus uh, experience and, and you were just absolutely walloped by the Lord. And maybe some of you were like, well, yeah, I did it. This is what I was, I, I had to do it. I don't hear any bells and whistles. I, you know, I, I, I don't see any great light. I'm not blinded for three days. When I came to Christ, it was a big room, 1,200 kids there. Prayed the prayer. I put up my hand. I went forward, and for 20 minutes, I couldn't hear anybody's voice except one person. And, and and I, you know, it really didn't hit me until afterwards that there was all this noise, but I couldn't hear anything. When I when I sat down and, and this one guy talked to me, I could hear his voice. I couldn't hear the others. And then by the time I was done and went went outside, people were talking to me, and then their voices came. What's that mean? I don't know. What did I expect to happen when I prayed the prayer and put up my hand and go forward? I expected I'd be forgiven. Because that's what the promise of Scripture was. It wasn't what I was looking for that night, but that's what happened. Naaman comes out of the water the seventh time. And maybe by then, he's no longer ready to go and kill Elisha. Because he doesn't expect it to happen. Maybe he came up out of the water and looked at his hands right away. Because the Lord had sufficiently humbled him in this process. And he was looking to be healed. We are self-willed. We each have an ego. We each have our own reasoning power. We have our own experiences and our own desires. And we like to be saved in the way that we want to be saved. And that was Naaman's problem when he came. He wanted to be healed in the way that he wanted to be healed, with fanfare and, and exhibition, but that's not the way the Lord wanted him to be healed. Nor is it the way the Lord wants us to be saved. He doesn't want us to be saved on our terms. He doesn't want us to come and say, okay, Lord, in my great wisdom, I have figured this out, and I have come to you, and I am ready to have your grace poured upon me. Lord says, I'm going to save you. That's the first thing. Then he says, I'm going to use my means to save you in the way that I think is most beneficial 
for my perfect will and plan. And he is the one who does this. Naaman received from the Lord only what the Lord could provide. Naaman didn't have to pay for it. Because he certainly couldn't pay for it. He couldn't earn it. He was an enemy of Israel. He certainly didn't deserve it. But because the Jewish maid, the little girl who he captured, was in his household and cared enough to tell him things of the truth, he found healing. Not only do I think that when he came out of that water the seventh time he was cleansed of leprosy, he was cleansed of his pride. I think he came out a, a whole new man. And when we understand salvation in the right way, salvation is a pride buster. It is a pride buster. You cannot come to the Lord and say, I have done this. I deserve this. I am worthy of this. Because you get nothing. When you finally figured out that you don't deserve it, that you have not earned it, that you cannot do anything, that the Lord would care for you in a way that would save you, now you're ready to save. Because now you're humble. Now the 